0: My name is Carmelie Yalig, and I work here in the Lexicon and on behalf of the Dunleer Rathdown Ratdown Library Service, I'd like to welcome you all to this Ulysses 101 tonight. Just to say to you, if you do hear a fire alarm, the exit's at your back. <laughs> Straight out that door as quick as you can. Hopefully that won't happen. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Alice Ryan to start the proceedings. Good night, Reliv. Thanks Carmel and welcome everyone to and thanks to DLR Lexicon for for have, hosting us in this beautiful venue. Um, We're here on the 2nd of February to celebrate uh, both Joyce's birthday and the 101st anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. But we're also uh, celebrating a more recent and and local uh, milestone. Uh, In this past year, it's been a significant one for the Joyce Tower um, uh, because Dunleary-Ratdown County Council has committed their support to the Tower by taking over the lease from Fulcher, Ireland. Um, And this, this has come about thanks to the tireless work of many inspired people, both from the Friends of the uh, Joyce Tower Society and Dunleary and Ratdown County Council. So um, as part of the new arrangement, I've been appointed as the curator of the tower, and I'm honoured to be following in the footsteps of uh, previous illustrious curators uh, Vivian Igo and and Robert Nicholson. Um, So before we commence the proceedings, to mark this occasion, we have a few welcome addresses and... um, as this has been made possible by the commitment and the, and the vision of Dun Rathdown County Council, I would first like to invite uh, Mary Hannafin, the Curelach, to say a few words.
1: Do uh, yousmearive and you're very welcome to James Joyce's birthday party. Um, delighted to have you here in the Lexicon, and indeed it was a significant year. Uh, we were very proud in Dunleary-Rathstown County Council uh, to take over the management, uh, with the new management company, of the Tower. Um, but continuing on the very valuable work of the volunteers um, who have maintained it for so long and who welcome visitors from all over the world all year round, uh, and we look forward to continuing uh, that cooperation as well. Um, of course, I think in Ireland, we're not very good on birthdays after you get to about 13 years of age, or the 12 years of age, you know. I know I'm not looking forward to my next birthday, because that's the day that I give up this chain, um, as I luck. Yes, I, I know, I know. But then, as they say, having a birthday is better than the alternative, isn't it, you know? <laughs> so, um, but of course, as we say, uh, normally, we get presents on our birthdays. But James Joyce insisted on giving us one on his 40th birthday, which, of course, was giving us Ulysses. Um, And it's interesting, as most of you would know far better than I, the way he interwove birthdays and dates into uh, his various writings. And whether it was his birthday or his father's birthday, Uh, he used a lot of those dates. And I was interested last night, I was listening to Joseph O'Connor with A Beautiful Evening in the Pavilion Theatre about his new book, um, my father's house Monsignor um, Hugh O'Flaherty, uh, and the escape route during World War II. but apparently Joseph managed to slip his own birthday into the book. Now he said that it was an accident. I think it's quite joyous, actually. You know, um, but we're far better in Ireland. I think at celebrating death than we are uh, birthdays, uh, probably because of the way people died. Be it our revolutionaries, um, our, our heroes. Um, we remember where we were when various people died. Um, we can remember big events like John F. Kennedy. I suspect everybody here can remember the shock the morning 10 years ago when Seamus Heaney died. Yeah. And you kind of, you know, so we remember those. We don't actually celebrate birthdays unless we can get ownership of it. Right? And by that I mean Roger Casement, that wonderful new statue down at the Baths. You know? We're taking ownership of him because he was born in Sandy Cove. Right. He did all of his work elsewhere, but he started here and he actually finished here um, uh, his last footsteps, as it were. So we can claim ownership of a birthday in Dun Rastown, but then we like to do things differently anyway, don't we? You know, But on this one, Joyce, in giving us a gift, it's quite interesting that just two events this year um, where I have been able to use that gift. right? One of them was, you will have noticed that Dunleary was awarded um, Great Town by the Academy of Urbanism. And when the adjudicators came, they were, of course, blown away by this magnificent building here in the Lexicon and were very taken with the piano, right? Um, And the whole link with Joyce. And by sheer coincidence, at the award ceremony in London, the Great City Award went to Trieste. So the judges stood up and said, is there any chance Dunleary and Trieste could get together and find the key? Because the key to the piano was lost for a very long time. (laughs) But obviously it's been found for tonight, which we're looking forward to. But it just shows, I think there's another opportunity for us to be able to make links and bring it back to Joyce. And the other one was I'm actively pursuing during my year a friendship agreement with Palo Alto in uh, California, because I want to make the link for businesses Um, and Enterprise and Innovation in uh, Sandyford, but also between the largest university in Ireland, uh, uh, UCD, and Stanford University. And I was actively trying to find some link with the mayor and with the council. So I went on, I had the Zoom link with the, the mayor, and I'm saying, you know, it's not all about innovation and enterprise, and it's not all about research and business, but we can offer you as a very old Literary, wonderful area, we can offer you culture that perhaps a new high-tech Silicon Valley city wouldn't have in, um, in California. So I mentioned a course, our Joyce Tower, and our Bloomsday, and I invited him over to wear the hat and everything else, only to find that he had studied Ulysses during his engineering course. <laughs> right? I still haven't made out the connection, but that's the way they do things in America, which is a lot to be said for a broad-based education. And suddenly, the link was found. So we have a new link with Trieste. We're making the new link with Palo Alto. So James Joyce, happy birthday, and thank you for the gift of Ulysses, the gift that keeps on giving. Gourmet. Thanks very much, Mary, um,
0: and I now want to uh, welcome Minister Osheen Smith, who's been hugely instrumental in driving the initiative to secure the future of the Tower, so um I'm delighted to welcome
2: you to say a few words. Thanks, Alice, and good evening everybody, you're very welcome. I understand that the pianist was surprised at the idea that he would be playing a piano in a library. But the library is, you know, it's obviously, it's so much more than a library. It has all these cultural events. And what I remember about it, and I have to be honest, is that my, my political career started with me campaigning against this library. It was a vanity project. <laughs> it was a waste of money. And, uh, and, yet, and yet, here I am um, celebrating it. And I guess that's a, that's a contradiction. And it's the type of contradiction that runs all the way through um, James Joyce's work. Seamus Cannon came to me a couple of years ago and he said, we're heading up to the 100th anniversary um, of of Ulysses, of the publication of Ulysses. And can we we move the the Joyce Tower to be under the control of the council? Can the council look after it in future? And he invited me to the erection of a grave for Mylar Kyo, who I think was Dublin's pet lamb. He was both a a character in the novel, but also a real person and was buried in Dean's (coughs) Grange, but there was no graveyard to... stone for him and now there is a gravestone and it's engraved with boxing gloves and i was there on a beautiful day and i remember thinking wow this greening of the the cemetery is really working there were there were blazing burgeoning flowers all around and um, a few months later, they they burgeoned too much. <laughs> and Joe Duffy ran a special, uh, one of many programs he's done about me, about uh, how how the, the the graveyard was being desecrated with plants, and we had to get them under control. But sure, that's that's the way. Um, and then we did have the hundredth anniversary. Eventually, we did have the hundredth bloom day. And uh, Mary Hannafin, our Cahirlik, was there, resplendent in costume. I was really delighted to see it, and the hat and everything. Uh, people were making, were were reading people from different countries reading different languages of Ulysses. It was a beautiful sunny day and I saw a view that I, I hadn't seen since I was a child looking all the way across uh, South County Dublin, really placed you in the, the feelings and sensations that you get when you read that novel the first time and you re- you're, you're assailed with, with just the physicality of the sensations that many of us are used to, the feeling of wading into ice cold water or of walking along the bay and looking out uh, over, over the beautiful landscape something that you feel really privileged to connect with, you think, that's in my history, that's in my memory, I've felt those things, something that you can see and touch. So now, what happens now, um, I'll be working with Dave Lawless and with Deirdre Black and with anybody else in the council to try to improve the Joyce Tower further, to try to uh, make sure that it's safe for fire and it's got better access. And anything, in in any way that I can help your organization because I think it is something very, very special. Nobody else has a Joyce Tower in their area, in their locality. And I I am delighted and I I love meeting you. I love, I think it's probably the fifth of these events that I've been at. I love the sense of um, of fun and of performance and of arts and of enjoyment that I get whenever I'm at it. So thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you.
0: And so Richard Boy Barrett is, is a great proponent of the, the work of Joyce and, and of reading Ulysses, as, particularly with a contemporary lens. So I'd like to invite Richard to say a few words too.
3: Thanks very much, um, Alice. And first of all, can I just commend Alice and all of the volunteers and all those who are involved in the Joyce Tower for the fantastic uh, work that they are doing because it's such an asset. Uh, to the area, and so important to commemorate uh, one of our greatest and one of the greatest uh, writers the world has ever produced. Um, I also want to apologise in advance to Sam, <laughs> but I'm going to watch it back afterwards. I have to, unfortunately, I have to go back into uh, the city, so I won't be here for the lecture. But I'm really looking forward to it. I've already been reading uh, about some of Sam's uh, writings, uh, so I think it's going to be a very exciting lecture, and I hope uh, that it will um, further engage people with the incredible work of James Joyce, and for those who haven't read it, uh, encourage you uh, to do so. Um, From my, you know, there's everything is in Joyce. Everything is in Ulysses. Uh, From meditations on, literally, the water infrastructure going from uh from still organ uh and how the pipes hadn't properly been invested in, something hasn't changed uh <laughs> greatly uh, to uh the sublime epiphanies of Stephen Daedalus, the ineluctable modality of the visible uh as he enjoys his uh, epiphany moment on sandy mount uh strand to uh meditations on. Uh, as one mathematician recently pointed out to me in a particularly funny uh, passage in the second last uh, chapter, where there's a, a hilarious meditation on Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, and it's all it's all in uh, Ulysses. But of course, being the lefty that I am, I have to I have to point to some of the slightly more radical and revolutionary elements of it and give it a, a modern day twist. One of the things that's not talked about enough, in my opinion, is the fact uh, that the central character that Joyce uh, chooses is a Jewish character. And uh, the uh, why is that significant? And indeed, why is it not talked about more? And something that uh, uh, should be talked about more is that he set the book in 1904 Uh, when there were horrific pogroms against the Jewish population uh, in Limerick. Horrible scapegoating of a minority group uh, being blamed by really foul and sinister forces uh, for things that, you know, weren't their responsibility, uh, but scapegoating them. And indeed, some of the major figures who were later to become key figures in the national movement uh, for uh, it, the independence of this state uh were vocal supporters of these horrible pogroms against Jewish people uh in Limerick where pe- uh, Jewish businesses were boycotted and attacked uh and so on and i don't need to tell you uh how that sadly is something that is echoing uh today with uh, some people's attitudes uh towards desperate people fleeing this country for uh for Uh, refuge. Uh, And uh, one of the central reasons, in my opinion, that Joyce chose um, Leopold Bloom, a Jewish character, was precisely to make the point that in the newly independent state, in the revolution that was brewing in Ireland, that it had to be uh, a place uh, which was a place for everyone. Uh, not based on some narrow notion of national identity, but rather on a radical and revolutionary one which was inclusive of everybody, of women, uh, of a Jewish minority, uh, of, you know, of everybody. Uh, and I just think that's such an important message. In Barney Kiernan's pub, he he precisely uh, satirises, if you like, that narrow notion of nationalism where, Bar- uh, where the citizen... Uh, waxes lyrical about the terrible oppression that Ireland had suffered at the hands of British colonialism, but then at the same time uh, spews some vile anti-Semitic uh, opinions directed at uh, Leopold Bloom. And it just, to me, that just shows the prescience of Joyce. Uh, that sadly, those uh, dilemmas, uh, those uh, debates are still with us, but Joyce, uh It seeks to set Ireland on a firmly progressive uh, trajectory. And I think now, as much as ever and more than ever, uh, Joyce's radical uh, and revolutionary work is something we should engage with uh, if we want to, to be part of developing an inclusive and progressive culture in this country.
0: Thanks. And uh, finally, I'd like to welcome Frank Hogan, who's the chair of the, the Joyce Tower Museum, um, just to say a few words.
4: Thank you, Alice. Goeheerlech, uh, Minister. Uh, distinguished guests. fellow Joyceans. Uh, good evening to everybody and welcome. My name is Frank Hogan. I'm the Chairman of the Joyce Tower and Museum Company, we're your co-hosts for this this evening's event with the Lexicon Library and I'd like to thank the Lexicon Library for facilitating the holding of this event this evening. Uh, We're here to celebrate the the birthday of one James Augustine Joyce, who was a short-time resident of uh, this constituency. Um, and until he wrote down he only he only stayed here for, for, for 6 days well he did of course as a child live in black rock before that which is technically in the in the area as well but uh, <coughs> he he left quite an impression uh, those 6 days certainly have reverberated through literature over the over the, <coughs> the century and a half almost since since then uh, and one of the things that, of course, it enables us to do is that 141 years on, it enables us to celebrate his birthday. And uh, the Joycean events, I think, since his death in 1941, have uh, expanded exponentially internationally. Uh, Bloomsday, his birthday, any other excuse to celebrate Joyce, uh, from everywhere from, from Sydney to Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, and back again, and even in Ireland, the country which probably was one of the slowest to recognise Joyce's talents. Let's be honest, we have we have got in on the act too, and we're here we're here this evening to to celebrate, and to and to participate in, if you like, in the joy of, of the great literature that Joyce created here in this area in Dunleary. and music, of course, was an essential element in Joyce's work. Um, There are other Irish writers like O'Casey, Bean and Friel uh, where music is, song is mused to great dramatic effect but there's probably no other writer's work that's so imbued with such varied and imaginative musical themes as as those of Joyce and that's not altogether surprising because Joyce himself was consumed with passion for music and while young he, he seriously considered becoming a singer uh, a professional singer rather than a writer. And had he not balked at the uh, sight-reading phase of the competition in the Fesh perhaps he would have gone on to be a tenor, even to rival John McCormack. Who knows? But uh, music's loss was, I think, literature's gain uh, in this case. Uh, so tonight, we're lucky enough to be able to present you a recital by Morgan Cook on Joyce's own piano. Uh, It's this piano here, it's a modest Petrov, as somebody said, uh, upright, manufactured in what is now the Czech Republic, Bohemia. It was then, of course, part of the same country as Trieste, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, uh, And Joyce acquired it in in Trieste in early 1910, I think. Um, John McCourt says that the deposit alone cost... Joyce and Nora, three months' rent, uh, which was much more than they could afford and even more than they had at the time. And then they had to pay the rest off in installments. Uh, Poor old Stanislaus, the brother, was left to saddle the burden. (laughs) And he did so. Uh, And I think we have to thank Stan as much as James for the fact that we're gifted with the presence of this... Uh, intriguing musical instrument this evening but Morgan Cook has tested it out and he says it's in tune and I believe him uh, I would trust Morgan's judgment better than my own so we look forward to that 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 recital Um, and we're delighted that the piano has found a new home here in the lexicon after its rather circuitous journey to get to get here over the years Ellman and others record that Joyce, Nora, and their friends in Trieste spent many evenings around the piano, which James played very competently, singing old Irish songs and pieces from Italian opera. And Sylvia Beach described Joyce as drooping over the piano in Paris while he sang in his sweet tenor voice to his own accompaniment. So we look forward to that. And also we will have extracts from the Sirens chapter uh, the, the most musical episode in, in uh, Ulysses by Karen Kelly. And, uh, and we're also honoured to have with us a very distinguished Joyce scholar, Professor Sam Sloat of Trinity College. Um, and uh, he is the co author of the recently published Annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses to give us a presentation on Joyce 101. Uh, well, it's not Joyce 101 in the the sense of being the beginning of Joyce, but Joyce at the... uh, Ulysses at the age of 101. Uh, Finally, I want to thank Alice Ryan, our new curator manager in the Tower, for having organised this event this evening. We're we're, we're, we're greatly indebted to you, Alice, and uh, we hope that you really enjoy it, and uh, enjoy a happy birthday to James Augustine Joyce. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Frank. That was a lovely introduction. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have, what we're going to do is we're going to split the readings and the music in two and have the lecture in the middle. So we're going to do the first part with the music and readings, and then we'll have Sam's lecture. So I'm going to invite Morgan Cook, who's an accomplished musician, actor, and composer, and Karen Kelly, who's also an accomplished actor and, and musician, um, to, to, to play the piano from Sirens and, and to read
5: Miss Deuce's head by Miss Kennedy's head. Over the cross-blind of the arm and bar heard the vice-regal hooves go by, ringing steel. Is that her? asked Miss Kennedy. Miss Deuce said, yeah, sitting with his ex, Pearl Gray and O'Donnell. Exquisite contrast, Miss Kennedy said. When all agog, Miss Deuce said eagerly, look at that fellow in the tall silk. ''Who? Where?'' Gold asked more eagerly. ''In the second carriage,'' Miss Deuce's wet lips said, laughing in the sun. ''He's looking, mind till I see,'' she darted to the backmost corner, flattening her face against the pane in a halo of hurried breath. Her wet lips tittered. ''He's killed looking back,'' she laughed. Oh, wept, aren't men frightful idiots? (laughs) With sadness, Miss Kennedy sauntered sadly from bright light, twining a loose hair behind an ear, sauntering sadly gold no more. She twisted, twined a hair. Sadly, she twined and sauntering gold hair behind a curving ear. It's them has the fine times. Sadly, then, she said, a man.
6: Blue Hoo went by, by Mulang's pipes, bearing in his breast the sweets of sin. By wine's antiques, in memory, bearing sweet, sinful words. By Carol's dusky battered plate, for Raoul.
5: The boots to them, them in the bar, them barmaids came. For them unheeding him, he banged on his counter trays at shattering china and There's yer tis, he said. Miss Kennedy, with manners, transposed the tea tray down to an upturned lithia crate, safe from eyes low. Well, what is it? It loud boots, unmannerly asked. Find out, Miss Deuce retorted, leaving her spying point. Your bow, is it? A haunty blonde, bronze replied, I'll complain to Mrs. Damasi on you if I hear any more your impertinent insolence. Impertinent, about. Snoot sniffed rudely, as he retreated as she had threatened as he had come. Bloom. On her flower frowning, Miss Deuce said, most aggravating that young brat is. If he doesn't conduct himself, I'll wring his ear for him a yard long lady ladylike in exquisite contrast. Take no notice, Miss Kennedy rejoined. She poured in a teacup tea, then back in the teapot tea. They cowered under their reef of counter, waiting on footstools, crates upturned, waiting for their teas to draw. They pawed their blouses, both, both of black satin, two and nine a yard, waiting for their teas to draw, and two and seven. Yes, bronze from an air by gold from afar, herd steel hoof from an air hoops ring from afar, and herd steel hoofs ring hoof ring steel. <laughs> Am I awfully sunburnt? Miss Bronze unbloused her neck. No, said Miss Kennedy. It gets brown after. But did you try the borax with cherry laurel water? Miss Deuce half stood to see her skin askance in the bar mirror gilded letter where hock and claret glasses shimmered and in their midst a shell. And leave it to my hands, she said. Well, try it with the glycerin, Miss Kennedy advised. Bidding her neck and hands adieu, Miss Deuce, ugh, those things only bring out a rash, replied. Receive it. I asked that old fogey and boys for something for me skin. Now, Miss Kennedy, pouring now a full-drawn tea, grimaced and prayed, Oh, don't remind me of him, for mercy's sake. Ah, but wait till I tell you, Miss Deuce It, Sweet tea, Miss Kennedy, having poured with milk, plugged both two ears with little fingers. No, don't, she cried. I won't listen, she cried.
7: But bloom.
5: Miss Deuce grunted in Snuffy Foggy's tone. For what? says he. Miss Kennedy unplugged her ears to hear, to speak, but said, but prayed again. Don't let me think of him or I'll expire. The hideous old wretch, oh, that night in the ancient concert rooms, she sipped distastefully her brew. Hot tea, a sip, sipped sweet tea. Here he was, Miss Deuce said, cocking her bronze head three-quarters, ruffling her nose-wings. Huffa, huffa! Shrill shriek of laughter sprang from Miss Kennedy's throat. Miss Deuce huffed and snorted down her nostrils that quivered impertinent like a snout in quest. Oh! Shrieking, Miss Kennedy said, will you ever forget his goggle, lie? Oh, and Miss Deuce chimed in in deep bronze laughter, shouting. And your other eye!
6: Blue whose dark eye read Aaron Fagatner's name Why do I always think Fagather? Gathering figs, I think And Prosper Lore's Huguenot name By Bassey's blessed virgins Bloom's dark eyes went by Blue-robed, white under Come to me God they believe she is Or goddess those today, I could not see. That fella spoke, a student, after, with Daedalus' son. He might be mulligan. All comely virgins, that brings the rakes of fellas in. Her white, by went his eyes, the sweets of sin. Sweets are the sweet of sin.
5: In a giggle and peel, young gold bronze voices blended. Deuce with Kennedy, Yarruder I! They threw young heads back, bronze giggle gold, to let free fly their laughter, screaming, Yarruder, signals to each other. High piercing notes. Oh! panting, sighing, sighing, ah, for done, their mirth died down. Miss Kennedy lipped her cup again, raised. Drank a sip and giggle giggles. Miss Deuce, bending over the tea tray, ruffled again her nose and rolled, rolled, fattened eyes. Again, Kenny giggles, stooping. Her fair pinnacles of hair, stooping, her tortoise nape comb showed. Spluttered out of her mouth her tea, choking in tea and laughter, coughing with choking, crying. Oh, greasy eyes, imagine being married to a man like that, she said, with his bit of beard. Deuce gave full vent to a splendid yell, a full yell of full woman, delight. Joy, indignation, married to the greasy nose, she yelled, shrill with deep laughter, after gold after bronze they urged each eel to peel after peel ringing in changes bronze gold gold bronze shrilled deep to laughter after laughter and then laughed more greasy I nose exhausted breathless their shapen heads they laid braided and pinnacled by glossy combed against the counter ledge all flushed oh panting sweating all breathless
6: Married to bloom, to Grease a-bloom. Oh,
5: saints above, Miss Deuce said, sighed above her and rose. I wish I haven't laughed so much. I feel all wet. Oh, Miss Deuce, Miss Kennedy protested, you horrid thing. And flushed yet more, you horrid, more goldenly.
6: By Cantwell's offices roved Grease a-bloom. By Cheppy's virgins, bright of their oils, Nanetti's father hawked those things about wheedling at doors as I. Religion pays. Must see him for that par. Eat first. I want not yet. At four, she said, time ever passing, clock hands turning, on where eat, the Clarence, Dolphin, on. For Raoul, eat, if I net five guineas with those ads, the violet silk petticoats, not yet, the sweets of sin.
7: tutto amor in mio spardor incontro bella sì che il mio cor ansioso spalevolo mi feri mi quell'angelica beltà Scusa, in corda l'amor si non potrà il pensiero di poter far con lei amor so bir il mar Ma vanno e il cuor, e il cuor. Ma parì tutt'amor, il mio sguardo li incontro, bella sì che il mio cuor ansioso allevolò. Marta, Marta tu sparris Pace mi rambisti, di che l'odio martirò, ma di dolor morò.
0: Oregon, that was absolutely beautiful. Is everything okay? Okay, I think it's all right. Um, everything okay? Okay. Um, so I'm very, very pleased to welcome Sam Slosh, Um uh, Frank mentioned he's a professor of English at Trinity College, Dublin, and he, he recently uh, published his annotations to Ulysses, which is a, a much-anticipated event. I mean, in the past, we were all reading Thornton and, and, and Gifford for our for our annotations, and now um, uh, he's set a new standard in Joyce scholarship. Um, Sam has served twice as a trustee of the International James Joyce Foundation and has been on the organising committees for numerous James Joyce, Joyce Symposiums. And although it would be entirely reductive to imagine an international hierarchy of Joyce scholars, but if we did, Sam would certainly be on the top row. So I'm delighted that he's taken the time to be with us this evening. So, welcome, Sam.
8: Some technical issues, I'll just thank you very much, Alice. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here at this event at the lovely uh, Lexicon. And it's great to see that the uh, Joyce Tower is in such wonderful hands. As uh, Mulligan says at the um, start of Ulysses, that it's the umphalos. Um, he may the sort of project of having the, the tower be the umphalos of an Irish revival. Might not have worked out exactly as he anticipated, but the tower is very much the omphalos within the Joyce world. Last year was the centennial of Ulysses publication, with a lot of material about uh, sort of the whole history of uh, of 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 that being um, uh, um, branded out in, in numerous fora worldwide which really leaves one of very little to say one year later at the 101st anniversary. But what I want to look at is exactly this idea of the 100 plus one, that extra little bit, to give a bit of distance, a bit of context, to try and fully understand what did happen 101 years ago by looking at the things that happened after that. Um, that it's also their subsequent history as well. And this indeed is something that Stephen thinks about when he's teaching um, history to a classroom of bored students um, in Dolkey. He's thinking about the problems of trying to understand history. Had Pyrrhus not fallen by a bedlam's, uh, beldam's lamp in Argus or Julius Caesar not been knifed to death, they are not to be thought away. Time has branded them and fettered, they are lodged in the room of the infinite possibilities they have ousted, but can those have been possible, seeing that they never were, that they never were? Or was that only possible which came to pass, weave, weaver of the wind? That is, history isn't just what happened, but it's also what could have happened that what we think of as history is a record of just one possibility that has been actualized and in so doing has ousted other possibilities. Stephen, being Stephen is thinking very much in Aristotelian terms that I won't bore you with, but things could have happened differently and that it is trying to really understand what did happen. You have to see how to understand what happened in terms of what could have happened and how subsequent events might have colored, might have conditioned what we did understand. And so for our purposes, Ulysses could have been published differently. The story of Ulysses publication is what did happen is just one possibility which ousted other possibilities. And to fully understand what Beach, uh, Sylvia Beach, Harriet Weaver, Joyce, and many others were doing is to look at the other possibilities, the other plans for publication. To take an example of how things, how the historical record can be misleading. There's a line in the Scylla and Charybdis episode where Stephen is holding forth on Shakespeare at the National Library, and he thinks William Shakespeare and Company Limited. It's almost impossible to not read that line and think of Ulysses being published by Shakespeare and Company. The Joyce is including a shout out to his publisher in his book. It's not. The line was written in a manuscript dated December 31st, 1918, when Joyce was still living in in Zurich, before he moved to Paris, before he met Sylvia Beach, and more importantly, before the bookshop Shakespeare and Company existed. He got lucky. Um, So when he wrote the line, it was not a reference to Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop. Of course, one can understand that in subsequent events, it retrospectively or retroactively became that. And you'll see much the same in terms of the history of the publication that I'm going to go forward. Indeed, part of what I'm going to um, um, try and explain is that Beach and Shakespeare and Company were not, well, I want to exaggerate egregiously, they weren't as important to the publication of Ulysses as the traditional version of the story goes. Now, as I said, Joyce was lucky in terms of um, 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 having this line be a reference. Joyce was lucky in many, many ways. And one of them is his meeting of Harriet Weaver, because effectively his publisher and very much so his benefactor. In 1913, Joyce was in Trieste um, a struggling writer, basically on the verge of giving up the whole um, 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 literature writing business. Out of the blue, he gets a letter from um, a poet named Ezra Pound, who says that Mr. Yates has recommended that I ask that you might be con- be willing to contribute a poem to an anthology of exciting new poets that I'm, I'm working on. Joyce submitted a poem. Pound said, this is great. Um, you wouldn't happen to have any prose by any chance, would you? And Joyce goes, yeah, odd that you mention it. Um, I've just finished a novel. Um, perhaps you would be interested. And, and, and it was through Pound that um, a portrait of the artist was serialized in the journal that Weaver edited, The Egoist. Um, and then it was, Weaver was so impressed that she want, continued an association with Joyce and started, effectively, was his benefactor, his patron, first anonymously, and then um, her identity was, was, was revealed. It's, it's difficult to overstate the importance of Weaver making Joyce the Joyce that we know today. And it was also as through Ezra Pound, my friend James Fraser has this line that Joy, in 1913, Joyce was one letter from Pound, away, one letter away. From just obscurity, and it was this that that um, um, enabled Joyce. So the egoist first uh, serialized a portrait of the artist in the journal, and then they published it in book form. And there's a little some details around the publication of the ego- of, of a portrait by the egoist that will be very relevant to um, Ulysses. Um, Joyce's American publisher at this time was Benjamin Hoops. I believe Hoopsch is how his name is pronounced. I might revert to Pwepsch at some point later. Just it's but it, I believe it, I believe it is, is Hoopsch, um, um, and he he'll, he'll be relevant in a moment. Now, the situation in the United Kingdom in terms of um, uh, um, persecution for publishing obscenity was that printers. Reliable as well as publishers. This, in effect, meant that printers were the first sort of vanguard of censorship, that a publisher might be willing to take a chance on a writer, but a printer wasn't. And so Weaver could not find a printer in, in England who would print the book A Portrait. So, what she did was um, A Portrait was first published in the US in 1916, in late 1916, by Hoopsch. Um, the first British edition published by the Egoist Press in 1917. The pages were printed in the U.S., shipped to the U.K., bound in the U.K., and then that was sold. Um, It was obviously a very expensive and impractical proposition for, for future publication, but the idea was to get this out and see if it would be prosecuted. If it wasn't, then Weaver would be in a position to convince a British printer that this is safe, to publish, and that's in f- exactly what happened. So you had a, f- a reasonably limited edition in early 1917 by the Egoist, went fine. And then um, uh, later in 1917, they, the Egoist did their second uh, printing with uh, uh, pages printed in, in, in the UK. This will be very relevant to what happens with Ulysses, the idea of a test edition that's sort of a, a toe in the water to see what will happen. Um, so. Weaver is the sort of um, the, the 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 first sort of major, um, 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 say benefactor, enabler of the publication of Joyce. Um, now, uh, when it came to the serialization of Ulysses, which Joyce began writing not in 1914 but in 1915, that's Joyce lied about that. Um, um, and the, the, the first few years, he's writing Ulysses out of order. It's a bit chaotic. But then the ser- he gets a serialization um, um, from both The Egoist in the UK and The Little Review in the US. Now, Weaver's problems with printers continued with Ulysses. The Egoist wound up not being the major venue of the serialization of Ulysses. She could only get four installments of um, Ulysses printed in The Egoist. So, Instead, Ulysses was serialized in an American journal of avant-garde literature, The Little Review, edited by Margaret Anderson, who was just utterly impressed with what Joyce wrote um, and just said, this, this, this is it. she said, this is the most beautiful thing we'll ever have. We'll print it if it's the last effort of our lives, which, being melodramatic here, it almost was. and the, the Little Review said that it, it's, it's the magazine read by the, uh, read by the people who write the others. It, was the, it very much was sort of the, one of the major venues of avant-garde um, writing um, in um, 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 the immediate post-war period. Um, now, they weren't immune to problems from persecution. Various issues of the Little Review were detained by US postal authorities. There were problems. Um, and Pound, who was also the, an, edit, um, the, um, um, an editor for the review and kind of Joyce's liaison to, uh, um, um, to Anderson and Anderson says, well, you know, you might want to tone down a few things. We're going to have some problems that in the, the scene in Calypso, when uh, Bloom goes to the outhouse to, um, to do his business, Pound surgically excised um, the <laughs> passages that that, that, it, that indicated the, what Bloom is doing, and Joyce was outraged at this, saying that, do not change anything, that Ulysses is to be published as I write it. And pa- um, Pound and Anderson eventually relented, but a, a number of issues did um, um, uh, fall foul of postal authorities. It really hit, in um, 1920 when they published um, the second half of the Nausicaa episode. Um, I, I suppose I don't have to um, um, describe what happened here. And they, they fell foul of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which was run by uh, John Sumner. I, the organization no longer exists. Um, and they um, um, brought, um, they brought um, Anderson to trial um, they were represented by the, the Irish American lawyer John Quinn. Anderson wanted to make a big fuss about it. She was willing to go to jail. Um, Quinn persuaded "No, you can't do it," and, and, and um, managed to just reduce it to um, a fine of fifty dollars. But also, um, uh, she had to; she could not continue the publication of Ulysses. Um, you see here that this is the, the first time Joyce has mentioned in New York Times improper novel costs woman fifty dollars. Greenwich Village publisher and her editor fined for producing *Ulysses*, woman's dress described, which is, I mean, considering what happens in *Nausicaa*, I can see, you can see why they would have to sort of summarize it like that. But it's a wonderful example of the old style New York Times staid, um, 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 style of journalism. Sumner writes in their um, annual report. And this is just, it is a beautiful um, um, thing. Uh, um, a citizen wrote a letter to the district attorney stating that it, the issue of the little review, had been sent to his young daughter from a source unknown. <laughs> a careful perusal of one of the stories, by foreign writer, um, (laughs) disclosed an apparently clear violation of the law against the publication and circulation of lewd and filthy material. The magazine boasts that it makes no compromise with the public taste, and that was one of the taglines Little review had. Its publishers contend that art is above the law. They were arraigned in the magistrates courts and have been held on bail for trial. We shall see whether our laws are sufficiently comprehensive to prevent the indiscriminate circulation here of the degenerate ideas of an alien exploited by misguided Americans whose only claim to recognition is derived from self-advertisement and the misuse of good printer's ink. It is just a beautiful (laughs) statement and the ways in which it connects with the themes of Ulysses that Nausicaa comes after the Cyclops episode where Bloom is in confrontation with the arch-nationalist who goes by the name The Citizen Um, and then Gertie McDowell is also very much um, um, a creature of self-advertisement of a kind. There's also it's it hasn't been as conclusively established, but it seems that this was a bit of the the, the, the operation that Sumner describes here it was a sting. That it wasn't that this this journal innocently or accidentally arrived here. This because the citizen he refers to was in fact a lawyer who worked for um the um, society. So it seems that they had arranged for this to happen. In any case. This quashed any possibility of Ulysses publication. Um, Hoops had been in discussion with Joyce about publishing Ulysses in book form when it was done. Um, Joyce said, I'm not going to change anything. And so Hoop that scared Hoops off. Anderson could no longer publish it in, um, um, in the little review. The problems Weaver had in terms of finding a printer in the UK were now exponentially worse. So Ulysses was left without imminent prospect of publication. Now this does actually had a material um, um, uh, impact on, on the quality of the, the text of Ulysses because up until this point, Joyce is writing more or less on deadline and more, and more or less of an expectation of publication. Now, no one's gonna publish it but he's got no deadline. He can write whatever he wants. And it's at this point that Ulysses becomes longer and stranger, and to use a technical term, weirder. Um, If Ulysses did not hit this brick wall of censorship, it would likely have been a very different and quite possibly less revolutionary book. So it does this, all this stuff, this kerfuffle, matters within the publication of Ulysses. But of course, This is little help to Joyce in um, early 1921 with Ulysses not not being um, published. Now, the canonical version of the story of Enter Sylvia Beach um, is this, and you're probably all very familiar with it. This is, Joyce is now um, established in Paris. This is what Beach writes in her memoirs. Joyce came to announce the news of the trial and and all, all that and so on. It was a heavy blow for him, and I felt too that his pride was hurt. In a tone of complete discouragement, he said, my book will never come out now. All hope of publication in the English-speaking countries, at least for a long time to come, was gone. And here in my little bookshop sat James Joyce, sighing deeply. It occurred to me something might be done. And I asked, would you let Shakespeare and company have the honor of bringing out your Ulysses? He accepted my offer immediately and joyfully. I thought it rash of him to entrust his great Ulysses to such a funny little publisher, but he seemed delighted, and so was I. We parted, both of us, I think, very much moved. There are quite a number of problems with the story and it's it's really shouldn't have remained the canonical version for so long. It just doesn't fit in with everything else Joyce was doing at this time because Weaver was still very much attempting to publish Ulysses, to find a way in which she could do it. Um, also, the version of Beech's memoirs that was published in 57, she'd worked on it for decades and there are many drafts and the earlier drafts tell a very different story. So this is from an earlier draft and this one does fit in with what's going on. He informed me of the progress and persecution of Ulysses. Miss Harriet Weaver, who had published a portrait of the artist and a fragment or two of Ulysses in a review, The Egoist, had by this time turned it into a publishing house in order to bring out Joyce's books but she soon perceived that the publication of Ulysses would mean trouble and end in disaster. In talking with Joyce, I saw he would be glad to have me publish the book. I said, what's going to become of it? He said, I think you'll have to publish it. I jumped at the chance, of course, but as usual, I consulted Adrienne, that's Adrienne Monnier, uh, Beach's partner, about a venture that I saw looming up rather huge this is the key thing joyce convinced persuaded strong-armed beach into publishing it and because the way in which shakespeare and company published ulysses brought together elements that had been circulating for a few months between joyce and weaver and others and that joyce in effect hoisted all these plans onto beach to make her do it. And, you know, to her credit, she very much did. And it, I mean, she was tremendously dedicated to Joyce. And this was a money losing proposition from the start that Ulysses was sold by subscription, but Beach only got the money once the copies were delivered, but she still had to pay the printer. So she was out hundreds of thousands of francs in the whole publication of it and just the pure dedication to Joyce is is commendable but it wasn't her idea it was hoisted on her so to look at the various elements that had been in play that um 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 Joyce hoisted on um Beach now earlier um in um when Hoopsch was still contemplating publishing Ulysses but saw that there could well be problem with prosecution for obscenity and so on and so forth, um, Hoopsch suggested the idea of making Ulysses available by subscription. Um, And this was one of the elements of the Shakespeare and Company publication, that you couldn't go into any old bookshop and buy it. You had to order it from a form. Now, the um, this is a strategy Hoops had used in other titles that were potentially controversial. Now, the specific copies of the books that he had sold there weren't any different from a regular book, um, but they were available by subscription. So this is element one, and this pre exists um, on Beach. The next one was, it's a deluxe book. Um, at some point late in 1921, an English poet, artist named John Rotker, who's living in Paris, friend of Joyce, uh, same circles. He said, you know, I just got a printing press and you know, I think maybe I could print this Ulysses for you. Um, and Joyce did for a, a few days. This seemed like a viable thing. Then Rotker had a look at what Joyce is writing. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to do it. <laughs> um, but this brings the idea of a deluxe book. And that's very much what the first edition of Ulysses was, a deluxe production. The next step, and this goes with, with the strategy that uses in a portrait, the first edition is just a test to get your toe out in in the oceans of, of the marketplace to see if it will be persecuted. A limited edi- limited deluxe edition available by subscription, that sells without persecution, then it's going to be fine to do a regular edition. Um, and once that's happened, Weaver will be able to take over with the Egoist Press. So basically replicating what had happened with the portrait, but with a first edition by subscription and, um, 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 and and deluxe. And Weaver had been contemplating doing that herself. She had briefly uh, 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 contacted the Wolves to see if the Hogarth Press would publish Ulysses, but they declined. So... This is why Joyce figured, well, maybe someone in France away from the problems of sort of English law and the English uh, uh, dispensation of English morality. And so this is why he turned to Beach. So she had all these things on her plate and Joyce did this without warning Weaver in advance. This is a bit of an ad hoc plan. Weaver wasn't entirely thrilled by it. So they had to sort of finagle something around it. And so this is is from May 1921. This is about about a month after the famous meeting with um, Beach. The Egoist Press puts out a thing saying, Ulysses will be published by the Egoist Press in an ordinary edition at 10 shillings sixpence as soon as, but not until, the Paris private edition of 1,000 copies is fully subscribed. This is to try and angle the two publishers together. So the first one will get out. But then the egoist will come in and publish a regular edition. I'll say something about prices later. But 10 shillings sixpence is a very good reasonable price for a book at this time. Um, So um, you have that. And then. through Edmond Monnier, Beach um, you, uh, contacts a printer named Maurice Darantier in Dijon, um, and he prints the first edition of *Ulysses*. Um, Darantier was used to printing high-end books. It's letter press, so it's each letter is done individually. Darantier knew no English, um, but had never printed an English book before. Um, he had to order additional letters because the dispensation, disposition of letter frequency is different in English than it is in French. The extra letters he ordered were W, H, E, and Y for the, the Joyce trivia contest we'll be having at the end of the evening. Um, now, I mentioned that that uh, uh, Darantière you knew no English. One of the people who worked at his print foundry did, Maurice Hirschwald, and Hirschwald took it on himself to correct what he saw as mistakes in um, Ulysses. This didn't go well, Joyce was outraged at this. There are letters complaining about it. Hirschwald writes this apology, which is in such bad English as to be comical. I mean, he, I mean it wasn't just he New English, he knew very, very badly. In any case, this is one of many reasons why the first edition of Ulysses has um, um, all sorts of, there are all sorts of sort of typos and technical issues. Big one too is also just Joyce's mania uh, for continually revising and changing and augmenting his text. He cannot leave a document by without making a uh, revision. Derentier, there there's a lot of correspondence between Derentier and Beach about the, of the eight months it took to produce Ulysses, and he's saying like, yeah, I can make these revisions, but I'm gonna have to, I'm charging you for these. You know I'm charging you for these. This is one of many bills that he sends her. Something like a third of the cost of the production of the first edition of Ulysses is just to accommodate Joyce's revisions. Now, um, again, sort of point out sort of the exceptional status of the first edition as it was conceived at the time. So this is this of the title page, Ulysses, Shakespeare and Company, but you see here by the same writer, his other books, the egoist press that um, indeed in late 1921, Joyce writes to Weaver, I would like to unify all my books under one publisher. Although uh, Weaver had only published a portrait and hadn't published Chamber Music, Dubliners, or Exiles, by 1923, she had the rights to all those things. So Joyce was, in effect, a writer published by the egoist. The Shakespeare Ulysses was just a one-off exception because of the exceptional circumstances, and that is indeed how the first edition of Ulysses presents itself. It was available by subscription. This is a subscription form that went out. They're using the, the suppression of Ulysses as part of the marketing gimmick, or gimmick, but as part of the marketing strategy. Ulysses suppressed four times during publication. Um, there are, um, an, an amongst the archives of Joyce Material, Joyce, uh, Joyce's drafts of this document in Joyce's hand, basically Joyce micromanaged the publication of Ulysses down to almost every last detail. Um, now note here, will be published in the autumn of 1921, not February, 1922. This is again, one of those bits of luck that sort of, because it happened this way, it makes it seem that it was inevitable. Ulysses was published in Joyce's 40th birthday, but that was never the plan. It just happened to be that way. All through the production, it was going to be well the autumn of 21, the late autumn of 1921, ah, early 1922. But Joyce kept, and this, this, part of this is because of Joyce's mania for revising and adding the text as it was going on. But he kept saying all through the late autumn, oh, it's gonna be out any minute now. Um, This is a postcard, or a little card, he wrote to his uh, 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 friend in Italy, um, uh, Tullio Silvestri, where this is from early December 1921, where he says, um, yeah, Ulysses will be out on the 15th of the month. So any minute now, it'll be out. He's wrong there, but he says, it weighs two kilos. He's completely right. It does weigh two kills. but it, there was no copy of Ulysses at that time, so it's an incredibly lucky guess that, that he got that. And um, even in January '22, he's saying, "Oh, it'll be out before the end of the month." It only the February second publication was probably only decided that way, like a week before when Joyce saw that. Yeah, I could we could let why not aim for that? So it was not a grand plan at all. Here um, are the um, page proofs of the last chunk of Ulysses that Joyce worked on. And you see here that uh, Darantier received the the corrections on the 31st of January, 1922. Um, And so the publication on February 2nd, what it really meant was that Darantier was able to get two copies made and get them plopped on the train to Paris, where Beach could put one in the window of her shop and give, have another one to Joyce. No one actually knows what those first two copies are. Um, but, and and Dallantiel then kept uh, chugging out copies all the way through mid-March. So publication is, it, there's a, a little bit of, uh, of, of, a, of a dodge to say it was published on February 2nd. Just means that two copies were out. And so Ulysses is now ready, and then the subscribers would get this card saying, your copy is here. Now, please pay up. Um, Now, um, slight uh, um, uh, 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 tangent. So Ulysses published in France in a deluxe edition available by subscription. It's done that way precisely because the forces of Puritanism censorship had worked against it in the UK and the US and so on and so forth. However, privately printed in France, is also how high-end pornography was produced at this time. As you see here, this book, Fleshly Attraction, translated from the French of uh, René Maisroy privately printed in a limited number for subscribers only in 1921. So the mechanism of publication actually further damaged Ulysses' reputation. Indeed, Beach would get letters from a variety of people. It's like uh, um, uh, this R. Burns here saying that, I am a collector of specialist (laughs) literature, and I would like to buy a copy of Ulysses. Um, So um, the the, the, the sort of the scandal around it very much augmented at the publication, along with the sort of the very famous um, 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 headline in, a journal otherwise devoted to um, um, sports. uh, The Sporting Times has has has, has an early review of Ulysses called The Scandal of Ulysses, where um, Aramis talks about a very rancid chapter of the Joyce stuff, which seems to have been written by a perverted lunatic who has made a speciality of literature of latrine. Um, a A number of people have tried to find out who Aramis was, his real name, and so far no luck on this. Um, so that 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 that's an interesting little riddle that I would like to get, get solved at some point. Now, um, in any case, Ulysses gets sold, and by the summer it gets sold. The copies are sold out. So now there's talk of now getting into the 101. What happens next? Weaver still hasn't found anyone in England who can print it, but there's clearly a demand for Ulysses, so it needs to go into a second printing. But Weaver can't handle it as such. So what happened, they do for the second printing and John Rodker comes back into the picture. It is technically published by the Egoist, but it's still printed in France, still printed by Dahentier in Dijon. Rodker acts as Weaver's agent. Um, in France. He liaises with um, Derentière, gets copies sent out by subscription, so on and so forth. So it is in effect now the egoist edition. And so Beach just pretty much steps back from publication. She still sells copies in her shop, but she's no longer actively involved in the production of Ulysses. It's now taken over by Weaver through Rodkirk. So, you see here in the second edition, it's now a fully an egoist production. And you have here the, the sort of tradition of Ulysses, including its publication history, first published by Shakespeare and Company, February 22, Egoist, October 1922. Now, a word about prices. Um, Converting prices um, into euros now—it's very difficult. There are all sorts of reasons why sort of translation factors differ. So these are very rough guidelines, just to give a sense of how deluxe these books were. The uh, the Shakespeare and Company *Ulysses* was divided into three series on varying degrees of paper, all of which would be deluxe. But the first limited series of 100, and these were all signed by Joyce. Very deluxe, Dutch handmade paper, quite large. It would be the equivalent of over 400 euro now. Books at this time would have been relatively more expensive than now, so this isn't a perfectly fair comparison. But this is significant. This is an investment. Then the second series uh, um, is 250 francs. um, And then the 750, 150 francs. It's still quite a deluxe production. The Egoist from October 22, it's effectively the same as the 750 series, but a little bit smaller. The margins aren't as generous. Uh, it's 2,000 copies, um, um, but the paper the paper is the same, and that's um, a, a two guineas. Um, so it, it's be well over 100 euros now, and that's far more than the price that Weaver had originally anticipated for the egoist Ulysses in that ad from um, May 1921 where she said 10 shillings sixpence, which would have been a, a, a standard price for a book that size at that time, about 35 euro now. Um, in terms of using the guineas, the, um, uh, the guinea is one pound, one shillings, so the idea is, it was used to denominate certain transactions to make them more fancy. Like horse races, professional salaries, auctions, works of art would be denominated in guineas. That is, it's a pound plus. Gogarty records this wonderful line from Joyce in 1904 where Joyce goes, I never borrow anything but guineas now, which is wonderful pretension like, yeah, I may be poor, but you know, I have standards. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the first editions of, of, of Ulysses were deluxe. Now, the second one, we're still working on this idea of the plan of testing the marketplace for prosecution. The first edition sailed through. The second is where the problems hit. Um, a chunk of copies sent out to the US were confiscated by US postal authorities. The exact number is unknown. Weaver guesstimated 500, but she admitted that was just a pure guess. So no one knows how many were destroyed. So what they did in early 1923 was they made a replacement copy of 500 copies just to sort of tie that over until the the further publication. They thought that that was just a temporary hiccup. The bulk of those copies were confiscated at Folkestone in the UK. The story is 499 out of 500. That's wrong. There are seven copies known to exist. This comes from the one that the NLI bought a few years ago. So, and there are probably other copies out there as well, but if there, it's still the bulk of it was destroyed. And this clearly indicated that the plan is not going to work, that Ulysses will hit censorship in the UK and the US. It cannot continue to be published in this way. And so this is where Beach comes back into the picture. Um, she resumes publication of Ulysses in an ordinary um, trade edition, still using the plates from Darantier. And she includes within, inaugurates this tradition, including within Ulysses, the history of the persecution of Ulysses. So it's as if this narrative of the publication woes of Ulysses is part of Ulysses itself. Two thousand numbered copies, of which five hundred copies burned by the New York Post Office authorities, five hundred numbered copies, of which four hundred ninety-nine seized by the Customs authorities, Folkestone, and so um, uh, Beach continues to um, um, sell Ulysses, and she, uh, Shakespearean Company, prints Ulysses all the way through nineteen thirty. Um, however, there's still con- there's continued strong demand for Ulysses um, worldwide. Copies are. Getting smuggled into the UK and the US. There's actually the term booklegger after bootlegger. Sometimes what they would do is um, bind Ulysses in, in, in a book and give it a title of something innocuous like Merry Tales for Little Folks, is one such example. Way of, uh, they'd sometimes they'd go through Canada as well. It, there's all the interesting stories about the sort of the the, the, uh, the, the, the smuggling operations. Um, In 1930, Joyce was approached by a German publishing house, the Albatross Press, and he he sort of unceremoniously dumped Beach and had um, them continue publishing Ulysses under a special imprint they had, the Odyssey Press. And they continued publishing Ulysses up until 1939. So even after you had legal publication in the UK and the US, uh, uh, they were the, the sort of the, the publishers of Ulysses in the Continent, and they, it was published as a regular trade edition. Um, now, I want to make sort of just a, a side note in terms of translations, because if the plan, the idea of a deluxe edition to test the marketplace, didn't work with English language editions of Ulysses, it worked with the translations. Um, The first translation was in German in 1927, and it was a deluxe edition available by subscription. Um, And it sold reasonably well for a number of years, and then that proved to the German authorities that a trade edition could be safely published in Germany, which it was in 1930. (coughs) Likewise, in France, Adrien Monnier, Beach's partner, published a deluxe edition of, of Ulysses in 1929, and the trade edition by the prestigious French firm Gallimard came out in 1930. So the plan worked, but for translations, not for the originals. Also, should be pointed out that Ulysses' first legal publication in an English-speaking country was 1934 in the US. By that time, Ulysses had been translated into French, German, Czech, and Japanese. Ulysses was more available in translation than in the original. Now, I'm going to move to sort of the the the, the long, complex saga of publication in the US. And there are twists and turns. Um, so we're going back now into the mid-1920s, um, an enterprising um, uh, publisher in New York, Samuel Roth, had published the Bits of Finnegan's Wake that were appearing um, in um, um, serial form in European magazines. He'd published them in the U.S. He'd arranged this through Pound. And he really wanted to publish Ulysses as well. And this was a risk because Ulysses was still very much um, um, a prohibited book. And he approached Joyce about wanting to do it. Joyce said no. But Roth did it anyway in his journal Two Worlds Monthly. Um, And Roth was perfectly entitled to do it. US copyright law at this time was not favorably inclined towards foreign publications. For work published outside the US, it had to be published in the US within six months, otherwise it would lose copyright protection. And so precisely because Joyce couldn't publish Ulysses in the US, it had no copyright. Roth was perfectly entitled to do this. Joyce was pissed, um, and he, the following year, he organized um, um, a statement regarding the piracy of Ulysses, where he got signatures from the, um, the, um, the good and wise worldwide. Oh, wow. Joyce is especially pleased to get Einstein, Einstein's yeah. signature in this document, where he con- he's condemning Roth. But he admits here, U- Ulysses is not protected by copyright in the United States. What Joyce is doing here is trying to assert French concept of the moral rights of the author there's no legal protection but fuck you I own, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, damn you I own this book um, and so this shamed Roth into in, into ceasing publication but here Joyce admits that there is no copyright in, uh, on Ulysses. Um, then we have sort of the the whole famous thing about the the, the trial in the late the, the late 30s. There's Colin Murphy's uh, um, wonderful stage adaptation of, of of the U.S. versus Ulysses that was performed here last year. So I'm not going to say too much about it. The the title of the, of the trial, the United States versus one book entitled Ulysses. It's a beautiful title. It sort of sets sort up idea of the sort of the the um, 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 David and Goliath kind of thing. But it, it in some sense it quite literally was the United States versus one book entitled Ulysses because the object of the trial, the, the victim as it were, wasn't Ulysses as such, it was a specific Copy that was smuggled into the US. This is a formula that was used in such trials, such as um, the United States versus approximately 126 assorted glasses, a quantity of intoxicated liquors, etc., found at Club La Lune on West 52nd Street. So this is the US versus this, that, and the other was a standard formula. I'm sad to report that the Club La Lune no longer exists. Um, but the, so uh, the trial happened and Um, Ulysses comes through, but this is no accident. The trial was engineered, um, and it was engineered by a publisher, Bennett Cerf. I should point out that Cerf and Roth are actually not dissimilar characters. They're both Jewish immigrants trying to um, um, establish themselves within the otherwise very waspy world of New York publishing. There's a class difference though. Um, Roth was very working class, Um, where Cerf was a comfortably middle class, went to Ivy League schools, which is how um, he made the various connections that enabled him to thrive in the New York publishing world. He founded or co-founded the publishing house, um, Random House. And he approached Joyce in 1930s, sensing that the moral climate of the US was different now and that it would be possible, there was a possibility that Ulysses could get published. And so with the help of Morris Ernst, they engineered the trial. They had someone come from Paris with a copy of Ulysses, insist that he get arrested for trying to smuggle it, and then they finagled their way to get to John Woolsey's courtroom because they knew he would be a sympathetic judge. So there was a lot of planning and strategy that went around this. Um, now the surf's big cons- also surf um, was very much sort of self-promoting and, and so on but not unlike Roth in the nineteen fifties he became very famous he was on um, a U.S. talk show um, a regular a regular contributor on, on, a, on a U.S. panel show this picture is actually from his IMDb page um, so here we have the first edition of Ulysses now surf the first US edition, Cerf was worried that he would go through all this effort and expense in terms of engineering the trial, so on and so forth, but the trial wouldn't give him exclusive rights over the book because once Ulysses is cleared for publication in the US, any publisher could do it. And he was panicked about this, that, um, um, it, was, that it would no longer be his exclusive commodity, that what about Roth or someone like Roth? coming down, he priced it as cheaply as he could. He begged Joyce to give him additional material, explanatory material, notes, so on and so forth, to distinguish his Ulysses from any potential competitor. Joyce said, nah, ain't gonna do that. What Joyce did do was just write a letter that was included in it, basically saying that this is the only authentic Ulysses in the United States. Now, here we have the copyright page of the first um, American Ulysses. American editions of Ulysses didn't, until the 1980s, include that publishing history of suppression. But they uh, they, they have something quite interesting. Ulysses, James Joyce, first American edition published by Random House, uh, 1934, copyright 1918, 1919, 1920 by Margaret Carroll Anderson, copyright 1934 to the Modern Library, Incorporated. What's missing here? There is no reference to 1922. Beach and Paris, because that would be a, an admission on the copyright page that Ulysses has no copyright in the US. So he has to take that out. And so he's trying to scare off any other potential publisher. So he's the, the publication, the serialization, that's one strategy. About a half of Ulysses had been serialized, so he's trying to count on that. And the copyright 1934 that only refers to Joyce's letter. That is the only text in that book that has a 1934 copyright. Sir didn't have to worry too much because the publishing industry was still mostly genteel. Joyce's uh, statement against Roth piracy scared off other potential publishers. So Roth was in the clear, but he really tried to inoculate his edition as much as he could against competition Roth also claimed, rather, Cerf also claimed that once the decision was handed down, within hours, his typesetters were, 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 were plopping out copies. And um, indeed, it came out just a few months later. In eight years, Beach published 18,000 copies of Ulysses in the various editions, it's including the two Egoist Press ones. In a few months, Cerf had 12,000 copies out in the first American edition. So it was just, it was just industrial scale Ulysses. However, Roth had his revenge. Um, According to the contract Joyce had with Cerf about the publication, the text that um, Cerf would use would be from a later Shakespeare and Company printing that would then be proofread against one of the Odyssey press editions. And that's what Cerf did, or more precisely, what he thought he did. The copy, and this is just pure dumb bad luck, the copy of the Shakespeare and Company Ulysses that they used to typeset it was not a Shakespeare and Company Ulysses. In 1929, Roth, pissed at Joyce, came out with a pirated edition of Ulysses. Um, it mimicked the 1927 Shakespeare and Company Ulysses. That's what it says it is, but it's a piracy printed in New York. Roth actually got into legal trouble for selling it, Not for copyright reasons, but because of obscenity reasons. He was, um, a number of copies were confiscated at the New York Bookshop, Brentano's, and Roth actually had a little um, bit of jail time for it. But in any case, this thing was out. And it was poorly printed, had riddled with typos. Because it was proofread against an Odyssey press edition, many of the typos were corrected, but not all. And this one involves the tower um, in the, a regular edition of Ulysses, it's he, Buck Mulligan, pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over to the parapet laughing to himself. In the Roth Pirate edition and thus in the Random House edition, he pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over the parapet laughing to himself. (laughs) Very, very different. And so American editions of Ulysses were compromised up until 1961 because of this. Um, So a serf's rush to publish perhaps didn't serve him well. Any case, Ulysses is now out, at least in some form, in the US. Um, Obviously Judge Wolsey's decision has no impact on the UK, but the fact that Ulysses is now legal to publish in the US, it encouraged the bodily head thinking that they could publish in the UK as well. So they adopt the plan again. They first put it out in a deluxe edition in 1936. That goes out, doesn't meet any legal obstacles, so the following year, they have their trade edition. The um, the deluxe edition from 36 comes in two limitations. One is vellum bound and cost an outrageous six guineas. Now that, that is probably the most deluxe of all the editions of Ulysses that were out there in the early years. Now in the US as well, in between the two, in 1935, George Macy of the New York department store Macy's, he ran the limited editions club and he thought, Ulysses, let's have a limited, a a, a fancy American Ulysses. And since Cerf realized this wouldn't be a competitor to his mass market edition, um, Bennett Cerf agreed to it. Joyce agreed to it as well. And they got Matisse to do the illustrations. And Joyce was initially very excited at the idea of Matisse doing illustrations for Ulysses. He arranged to have um, a book with illustrations of Dublin be sent to Matisse. Matisse, on the other hand, this is just a paycheck for him. He didn't care at all. Never read Ulysses. Didn't bother. So he just illustrated the Odyssey. Um, uh, And in any case, um, um, uh, that comes out. It's not, in terms of typography and layout, it's not the best. But what's interesting about this is that the US inverts the plan. Everywhere else is deluxe edition first, and then a trade edition. In the US, it's the trade edition first, and the deluxe edition follows that. I'm now going to conclude just a few things about um, obscenity um, and sort of the afterlife of obscenity and Ulysses, because Ulysses was dogged by this reputation of being a dirty book for many, many years. Roth continued publishing various things, sort of going more and more downscale, as it were. And then ultimately in the 1950s, he was brought uh, uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on charges of obscenity for his method magazine American Aphrodite, which is a kind of latter-day successor to, um, to World's Monthly. Um, what's interesting about this case is that this is um, Roth I, and this is the first, um, um, this overturned the 19th century Comstock laws, which had been used to prosecute Margaret Anderson in 1921. So in effect, the laws that criminalized Ulysses in the 20s were overturned thanks to Roth, in the 1950s, also pre- precisely because these led to a liberalization of publication laws in the late 1950s, it's been argued that this tro- that that this um, um, decision of the Supreme Court was one of the ingredients that led to the 1960s, the sort of the explosion of of uh, um, um, Unfettered uh, publication was a result of this decision. Um, there wasn't. There were. There were still some issues with. There's some ambiguities in terms of uh, of how obscenity was defined. Which I'll get to in a second. But this is the first real challenge to the nineteenth century uh, um, um, the, dispen- the disp- dispensation of, of obscenity that had been defined by the Comstock laws. Now. Ulysses is still defined as a dirty book, and this is something um, from um, Modern Man magazine from 1957, an article on Joyce, classic battle over a sex classic. James Joyce was a thin, bespectacled scholarly Irishman who all his life was fascinated by the effect sex had on ordinary people. Taken out of context, about 30 pages of the book could be classed as ranking with the most imaginative pornography the world has ever known. So maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but it's also showing that where Joyce's influence is resting. Um, this um, I'm grateful to my friend David Earle, who's written about this in a book, Recovering Modernism, the ways in which modernist writers were publicized, discussed in unexpected venues, in popular venues, in venues such as this. Um, and the article, despite that quote, is actually not too bad. Um, I only read Modern Mad Magazine for the articles. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, but it's okay, so, so the, the, how the, the sort of the shadow of obscenity still haunts Ulysses, and it carried over until at least the late 1960s, We have this little volume here, Ulysses James Joyce complete and unexpurgated first American printing, it's from the late 60s, so it's not the first American printing, it's by a porno- pornographic book publisher in Los Angeles, and they have the last 40 pages are, have ads for their other books. Uh, <laughs> This is the back cover, all male nudes. And it's it was challenging to find the, the, the right sort of pages uh, 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 to cover because there's something charming in every one. Um, you have here the three sequels to Ulysses. It's fun to be Jewish, it's fun to be an artist, it's fun to be Irish. Um, now, I'm bringing this up not just for this, but because the person behind collector's publications was a man named Marvin Miller, the King of Smut, as he was called. There were two big US Supreme Courts in the 20th century about obscenity. The first one from the 1950s was Roth. The second one was Miller versus California and this established what was called the Miller test to define obscenity. The Roth trial still had some um, ambiguity in terms of what is obscene, what can be uh, prosecuted, and so on and so forth. And this was clarified by their second decision, the Miller decision. And this is still used today um, with uh, three criteria to define what is obscenity, what can and cannot be published. So the two cases involving obscenity that went to the, hit the U.S. Supreme Court, both involved the pirates of Ulysses' publication, which is, I think, just sort of an interesting kind of afterlife to the sort of the tangled history of the mess of Ulysses' publication. And um, I sort of went, in preparing this talk, I kind of went this way in terms of other ways that I'm sort of more used to writing about how the um, the problematic circumstances of Ulysses' first publication led to a greatly flawed first edition, and how we still haven't gotten past sort of the textual errors, the typos, as it were, of the first edition. We're always going to be haunted with problematic editions of Ulysses. As I tell my students, and this is not completely true, but no matter which edition of Ulysses you have, you have the wrong one, (laughs) Um, unless actually you have this one, this 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 might be. Um, it's actually the. T- um, actually, 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 it's 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 not as bad as the first random house, but it's not good either. Um, I guess I'll leave it here. Maybe th- th- there's time for questions. Uh, yes, yeah, there's five
0: minutes for questions. Okay. Sure.
4: The anyway
8: yes. Um. The. And this. This is sort of a coincidence, but the the. Time of Ulysses' censorship in the US from 1920, the, the trial to late 23, the second trial, with is exactly parallels prohibition. And I mentioned that sort of the, the, the smugglers were called bookleggers, the, and the circumstances around. And again, when, when Sir felt the approach to it, I think the moral climate of the states is changing, in part, that. He was also basing that on the increased resistance to prohibition. It does look like the prohibition will be overturned. So de- there is definitely an alignment of a sort, and I mean it, it's more of a coincidence that the timing perfectly or reasonably perfectly matches. But it, yeah, there is definitely sort of so- something to that.
6: How did Sylvia Beach feel when
1: she was effectively dumped?
8: Not good. Not good. Um, Joyce's relations with Beach were problematic, and this goes back in part to all have got is a prevention of vice t-shirt. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Joyce Joy, Joy did not treat Beach well. Um, he, in fact, there was no contract he had with Beach until 1929, 1930, and as soon as the contract is signed, that's when he dumps her. Um, he really exploits her in a very bad way, and she's, the, the, their relationship is tangled and fractious for a period in the early 1930s. It's mended somewhat, but yeah, he doesn't treat her well. It's also, it was it was problematic from the start, because as soon as, you know, by the way, you're gonna you publish this for me, yes, I'll publish it. Oh yeah, but Weaver's gonna take over for you. So the, the, the relations with Weaver were also problematic, and that, that Card I showed of the, the Egoist publication, there were delicate negotiations between Beach and Weaver as well. So all was not harmonious in that circle. What I find also interesting on this is that copy one of the first edition of Ulysses doesn't go to the publisher, it doesn't go to Beach, it goes to Weaver. Mm-hmm. Harriet we- Joyce gives copy number one to Weaver, copy two goes to Beach, copy three goes to Margaret Anderson, copy one's now now at Molly. Um, and that's, that is. It's one could it, if one had say Joyce's inclination for resentment as he was called by I forget who the injustice collector that would be a slight because I published this I went bankrupt for this and I'm not getting copy number one that goes to, it, it shows that Joyce pri- valued Weaver more than beach that was flipped though for the egoist Ulysses copy one went to beach copy two goes to Weaver so maybe, maybe that was the compensation but yeah it was Fractious, and Joyce is largely to blame for that. Hi,
2: Sam. Thanks for a very fine lecture.
8: Do you think John Quinn mishandled? I'm not a lawyer on this one, so John Quinn was represented um, um, uh, uh, Margaret Anderson during that trial, and he was the one who encouraged her to not become a martyr and just deal with the fine and we ain't going to get it published. Martyrizing yourself is not going to accomplish anything. From a legal standpoint, I think he's probably giving the sage sane advice in terms of what an artist might want to do, in terms of fighting the man. Maybe not. But it's also, he probably had a point that if Anderson had gone down that route, um, it really might not have accomplished anything. The first Irish edition. First legal Irish well, the whole publication of Ulysses in Ireland is is uh, John McCourt's book from last year, Consuming Joyce, goes into it. Um, the way the censorship in Ireland was handled was a distinctly it was an Irish solution to an Irish problem. <laughs> it was never censored. Um, it was there was a post office prohibition against it, so it couldn't legally be imported. But had there been an Irish publisher willing to publish in the 20s, they could have done it. Of course, then, then it might have gotten censored here, um, and there were, in fact, there were. Fred Hanna's ordered a whole bunch of copies from Sylvia Beach. The Dublin Bookshop also ordered a bunch of copies from Beach. In the mid twenties, Yates writes to Pound saying, "Oh yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing a copy." And it's a bookshop that was on um, Dawson Street, where the the, the fancy tailor's Massimo is now. But they had Ulysses in the window, so it was available. By the time uh, by the time it hit the thirties, then it sort of goes underground. Um, and then the, the, the um, so there are people reading it, but it's it's still it's it's out, uh, it's it's closed. But yeah, Ulysses is never censored as such. The f- strict film from 1967 was censored, and that wasn't that, that prohibition wasn't overturned until the early aughts. The first Irish publication of Ulysses, like when the Irish publishers it's the Lily Put Press in the nineties. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Sam. I'm sorry we didn't have more time for questions. A fantastic lecture. Um, Now we're going to have the second part of our recitals. I'm going to welcome back uh, Morgan and Karen. Thank you.
7: Black bat night has flown Come into the garden Maud, I am here at the gate alone I am here at the gate alone And the woodbine spices Are wafted abroad, and the musk roses blown for a breeze of morning moves and the planet of love is on high beginning to faint in the light that she loves on a bed of daffodil sky to faint in the light of the sun he loves to faint in the light and die. Come, come into the garden, more for the black bath night has flown. Come into the garden, more I am here at the gate alone i am here at the gate alone i am here at the
5: strolled Mr Daedalus. Chips, picking chips off one of his rocky thumbnails. Chips. He strolled. Oh, welcome back Miss Deuce. He held her hand, enjoyed her holidays. Tip top. He hoped she had nice weather in Ross Gorgeous, she said. Well, look at the holy show I am, lying out on the strand all day. Bronze whiteness, that was exceedingly naughty of you. Mr. Dedalus told her and pressed her hand indulgently. Tempting poor simple males. Miss Deuce of satin deuced her arm away. Oh, go away, she said. You're very simple, I don't think. He was. Well, now I am, he mused. I look so simple in the cradle, they, cr- they christened me simple Simon. Well you must have been a doughty, Miss Deuce made answer. And what did the doctor order today? Well now, he mused, whatever you say yourself, I think I'll trouble you for some fresh water and a half glass of whisky. Dingo With the greatest alacrity, Miss Deuce agreed. With grace, she tapped a measure of gold whiskey from her crystal keg. Forth from the skirt of his coat, Mr. Daedalus brought pouch and pipe. Alacrity she served. He blew through, two, he blew through the flue two husky fife notes. Yes, he fingered shreds of hair. Her maiden hair, her mermaids, into the bowl. Chips, shreds. Musing. Mute. None not. Said nothing. Yes. gaily Miss Deuce polished a tumbler, trilling, Owey, oh, Dolores, Queen of the Eastern Seas. Was I Mr. in today?
6: In came Lenehan. Round him peered Lenehan. Mr. Bloom reached Essex Bridge. Yes, Mr. Bloom crossed the bridge of Yesex. I'm to Martha, I must write. By paper. Dailies. Girl, there's civil. Bloom. old Bloom. Blue, Bloom is on the rise. Right.
7: Jane, my pretty Jane, I never, never look so shy, but meet me, meet me in the evening when the bloom is on the rye. The spring is waning fast, my love, the corn is in the ear, the summer nights are coming, The moon shines bright and clear, then pretty Jane, my dearest Jane, i never look so
9: shy,
7: but meet me, meet me in the evening when the bloom is on the rise.
5: The tuner was in today, Miss Deuce replied, tuning it for the smoking concert, and I never heard such an exquisite player. was that a fact? Didn't he, Miss Kennedy? The real classical, you know? And blind too, poor fellow. Not twenty, I'm sure he was. Was that a fact? Mr. Dedalus said. He drank and strayed away. So sad to look at his face, Miss Deuce condoled. God's course on, bitches bastard. To the door of the bar, the dining room, came bald pa, came bothered pa, came pa. Waiter of the ormond, lager for diner, lager without alacrity she served. With patience, Lenehan waited for boiling, with impatience for Jingle John T. Blaze's boy. Upholding the lid, he, who, gazed in the coffin, coffin, at the oblique triple, piano, wires. He pressed, the same who pressed indulgently her hand, soft pedalling, a triple of keys to see the thickness of felt advancing, to hear the muffled hammer fall in action.
6: Two sheets, cream vellum paper, one reserve, two envelopes. When I was in wisdom, Healy's wise bloom, in Daly's, Henry flower bought. Are you not happy in your home? Flowers to console me, and a pin cuts low, means something. Language of flow. Was it a daisy? Innocence, that is. Respectable girl, meet after mass. Thanks awfully muchly. Wise Bloom eyed on the door a poster, a swaying mermaid smoking mid nice waves. Smoke mermaids, coolest whiff of all, hair streaming love-lorn for some man, for Raoul. He eyed and saw afar on Essex Bridge a gay hat riding on a jaunting car. It is, again, third time coincidence jingling on supple rubbers it jaunted from the bridge to Ormond Quay. Follow. Risk it. Go. Quick. At four. Near now. Out. Two pence, sir, the shop girl dared to say. "Ah, oh, I was forgetting. Excuse. And four. At four. She, winsomely she, on Bloomin' whom smiled. Blooms, smooth, sweet, oh pro. <laughs> Turnoon, Think you're the only pebble on the beach? Does that for all? For men?
5: In drowsy silence, gold bent on her page. From the saloon a call came, long in dying. That was a tuning fork the tuner had that he forgot, that he now struck. A call again, that he now poised, that it now throbbed. You hear? It throbbed pure, purer softly and softlier its buzzing prongs longer in dying call. I heard you were round, said Blazes Boilin. He touched to fair Miss Kennedy a rim of his slanted straw. She smiled on him, but Sister Bronze outsmiled her, preening for him her richer hair, a bosom and a rose. Smart Boilin bespoke potions What's your cry, glass of beer? A glass of beer, please, and a slow gin for me. Miss Deuce reached high to take a flagon, stretching her satin arm, her bust, that all but burst so high. Oh, oh, jerked Lenehan, gasping at each stretch. Oh, but easily she seized her prey and let it low in triumph. Ah, why don't you grow? Asked Blazes, boiling. Fine goods in small parcels. That is to say, she. Neatly she poured, slow, syrupy slow. Here's fortune, Blazes said. And he pitched a broad coin down. Coin ran. Clock word. Miss Kennedy passed their way. Flower. Wonder who gave? Bearing away tea tray Clock clacked Clock worked Miss Deuce took Boylan's coin Struck boldly the cash register It clanged Clock clack Go on, pressed Lenihan. There's no one He never heard, please, please He pleaded over returning Phrases of a vowel Afterwards Miss Deuce Promised coyly, no now urged Lanihan, le la cloche, oh do, there's no one. She looked quick, Miss Ken out of earshot, sudden bent, two kindling faces watched her bend. Go on, do! Sone Bending she nipped a peak of her skirt above her knee, delayed, taunted them still, bending, suspending with willful eyes. Sone. SMACK! She set free, sudden and rebound Her nipped elastic garter Smack warm against her smackable A woman's warm hose tie La cloche! cried Gleeful Lennon
9: Trained by owner,
5: no sawdust here She smiled, smirked supercilious Wept Aren't men But lightward gliding mild She smiled on boiling you're the essence of vulgarity, she and Glyden said. Boiling, I died. Tossed a fat lips his chalice, drank off his chalice tiny, sucking the last fat violet syrupy drops. His spellbound eyes went after, after her gliding head as it went down the bar by mirrors. Gilded arch for ginger ale, hock and claret glasses shimmering. A spiky shell where it concerted, mirrored bronze with sunnier bronze. Yes, bronze from a nearby. Sweetheart, goodbye.
0: For attending and thanks again to uh, DLR Lexicon for hosting us this evening so um, watch out for the next event which will be Bloomsday. <laughs>